Welcome to the Apocalypse Podcast. This is an online Bible study of the book of Revelation as taught by Pastor Andy Kroll. You can find more resources online at www.thepulpiteer.com backslash revelation. Almighty God, we thank you so much for a chance to gather again. Um, we're thankful for a place to gather. Uh, for safety, that we can meet together in safety to, to worship you and, and to study about you. And we pray, God, that, um, that you would use Scripture to shape us and to form us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Weirdest thing you read? Is anyone weirded out by Ezekiel? Did anybody read Ezekiel? Yeah. Well, did he let him go or what did he do? He released him so that there's a purpose for him to release him. Oh, well, that'll be an exciting thing to learn in a second then. Yeah, he didn't let him go to just run wild. Um, no. He released him so that he would be judged. And it's kind of like the beast, the one who was and is not and is going to ascend to be judged. Kind of like that. What else? Weird stuff you read. Yeah, the name that no one knows. Yep. If I don't cover that, make sure to ask it because that's a, a name no one knows. What else? Weird stuff. Yeah. The birds eating the flesh. Mmm, Thanksgiving. Huh? It's like the Reverse of Thanksgiving. Yeah. What else? Though they have the sword out of the mouth, yeah. Just swinging his head like crazy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Both hands behind his back. Yeah, the smoke goes up forever and ever. Yeah, good. Kind of disturbing, huh? Where else have we seen smoke in, in this part, or where else have we talked about that? Way back in the beginning, or way back in chapter 5, um, there was incense. And what does incense do? What does it give off? In the prayers of the saints. And so the incense has this picture of smoke rising up. This is one of the things, and we talked about it oh, a week or two ago, how the, the wrath of God is um, kind of like the natural consequences or it's the, the thing that follows through. A judgment and righteousness and holiness are all kind of tied in together. So it's getting the reality that you choose. And along with that, then you get this image of the prayers of the saints. And I think tied in with that, the prayers of the saints under the altar that are being persecuted. So you get these prayers of the saints that are being persecuted by this fallen Babylon world. And eventually that, that smoke transforms from the prayers of the saints because of their persecution to the reality of the, the smoke of the torment of the people who were persecuting. And, and again, it's almost like God says, well, if you, if you decide to have a reality where that torment happens and raises up smoke, then you get it. And it kind of goes back to, again, like, I think the, the worst thing for us that God could do is to say, fine, you get your way. I think that's a, just a, a really key concept to grasp 
in regards to judgment. It's something I've thought about for a long time. I remember in college where I just kind of, I walked away from my faith, but I was also, I didn't stop believing in God. I just stopped wanting to do what God wanted me to do. <laughs> just wanted to do what Andy wanted to do. So I wanted to be my own God, so there you go. And, but I was still thinking about things. I remember one of uh, the girls from our sister floor uh, who said, you know, well, why wouldn't God want me in heaven? I don't understand why God would send people to hell. Why would God send me to hell? You know, I'm not a bad person. And you know what? She wasn't a bad person. I mean, I'm sure she did some things wrong, but she wasn't like psycho serial killer or something. She was not a bad person. And, and so I thought about that. What does judgment mean? Is God just saying, well, because you didn't say the, the prayer that looks like this, you don't get in. Um, but instead, judgment is really all of us having the choice of will God be God or will you try to be your own God? And so really that's what it came down to was um, the question isn't why wouldn't God want me because God did want her. Why wouldn't she want God? And if at some point God says you get your way and if your way is that you don't want God on God's terms, then that's the result of judgment. It flips it on his head. I think it's an important concept. All right, I'm going to move forward, and I want us to think about this. Um, Again, what if Revelation isn't primarily about future predictions, but instead it's about how to live faithfully now? And here we're going to get some, we're going to see the the victory of Christ, the defeat of evil, but there's also going to be this um, theme of this call to discipleship, of living a faithful life. And, And for us to live a faithful life, in the midst of a fallen Babylon world. Um, and, and so I want you to really kind of hang on to that. And one of the things that will be with that is um, to think about how evil is false, which may be two categories that you hadn't put together, but evil as false, evil as um, untrue, evil as, evil as a rejection of reality, really. Um, and so think about it this way, just at the very heart of things, sin, sin is a rebellion against God. So God creates everything, including you and I, and when we turn to God and say, you know what, I think I'd be a better God, that concept is false. You wouldn't be a better God. You didn't even make yourself, right, let alone anything else around you. There's the old, old joke about God and I don't know, some guy who didn't believe in God, I guess, were having a contest. And they're like, uh, make your own person. So God creates uh, Adam out of dust. And then the guy says, okay. And then he bends down and starts to scoop the dirt together. And God said, no, 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 no. You make your own dirt. <laughs> so we've got this, uh, the, the very concept of... Um, of, of sin is it's fault it's based on falsehood so evil is evil as untrue or evil as false and along with that then if we are to live as a presence for the truth of God in the midst of a world centered on falsehood um, what does it mean to be a priest when we're called a kingdom of priests or the priesthood of all believers what does what does a priest do Yeah, a mediator, yeah. So there's the holy, holy God, and then the unholy people, and, and the high priest is Christ. 
the, the real mediator, the real boundary between the two. And then we're called to be a kingdom of priests to mediate God's holiness to an unholy people. Uh, and then also to, to pray for those unholy people to a holy God. So if we are in the midst of um, this, this kind of uh, world centered on falsehood, we are to be um, a city on a hill, the light of Christ shining um, not only the love of Christ, but the truth of Christ into the world, because there is no love without truth. And so that's kind of one of the things for us to think about. That's, a, that's also another, and we haven't, haven't talked about the rapture much in a while, but one of the reasons I have an issue with that is that is removing the, the priests of God from the earth. Whereas um, we are called to be the body of Christ in this broken world. We're not called to be like God taking his ball and going home, but rather the, the people of God spreading um, the word of God, uh, sharing about Christ in the midst of, all, of a fallen world. And that's the picture that's consistently given through Revelation is the people of God in the midst of this fallen Babylon world. And how do you live that out? So um, the overall scheme of the book if you remember, it's on page, I think, 23 of, of your book. And so you get um, the chapters 2 and 3, right? We get the church that's imperfect in the world, uh, the letters to the churches. And then you get this uh, period of intensification. So you get the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the conflict with the dragon, the seven bowls, and then we get into the final judgment. And so these cycles, they, it's cycles that keep coming back. And if you remember the, the seals... When we get to the seventh seal, it gets to silence, and you get this, this sense that it's like right before the final judgment, and then we go back, and then we get to the seventh trumpet, and it feels like we're right up to the final judgment again, but then it goes back, and then you go to the seven bowls, and at the seventh bowl, it feels like we're right at the final judgment again, but then it goes back, and so it's, it's, it, and it seems to get louder as we go. And so here we're going into um, what's going to be um, a, a picture of, or start to get us even closer to the final judgment. Well, <coughs> as you look at this then, I think this is in your notes uh, for today, you get the, throughout the book, you get this rise of evil. So um, in chapter 6, with the horsemen of the apocalypse, you get death and Hades are set loose as the fourth of the horsemen. Um, the dragon persecutes the church in Revelation 12, and we know that the dragon is who? Satan, okay, so the dragon, so death and Hades first, then the dragon, and then in Revelation 13, we find that the beast rises out of the sea, and then there's a second beast in Revelation 13, the, the land beast or the false prophet, it's referred to later, and then we hear of Babylon, so we get this rise of evil as Revelation goes on. Well, now we're into a section with the fall of evil. Last time when we met, we talked about the fall of Babylon, so Babylon is judged and, and falls. After that comes the fall of the beasts. And so in Revelation 19, if you'll look at Revelation 19, verses 17 to 20. I saw an angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to the birds that fly in mid-heaven, come to the great, gather for the great supper of God, eat the, kings of, or the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses, the riders, the flesh of all. Um, then I saw the beasts, let's see, and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered up to make war against the rider on the horse. Um, the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet. 
and the two were thrown alive into the fire that burns with, burns with sulfur. So here we get the capture of the beasts. The beasts, uh, for the people who first read this, the sea beast would have, would have represented Rome, I think. But the beast is this manifestation of, of the, this fallen system of the world. And so while it would, it would be um, Rome to them, I think that we see aspects of the beast in, in fallen systems all around us. Things that tell us that when we get into how we value people and how we um, exchange things, uh, stuff like that. And also it's stuff that leads to idolatry. And so the second beast, the false prophet, is the one that gets us to wor- worship the works of the first beast. And, and so the false prophet's the thing that, that calls us to idolatry and calls us away from Christ. And So for them, uh, in the first readers, it would probably be um, the temple cult, the, the priests and the altars to Caesar and stuff like that, because it's calling them to worship Rome and things like that. Um, so the beasts then fall. So what this would mean then is that these fallen systems and these systems of idolatry are being judged. Revelation 20, you have the defeat of the dragon, and then 2014, you have the defeat of death and Hades. So you see that they're handled in the reverse order in which they came. And so you get this kind of peak decline. That is showing then, um, well, by the way, let me say this. Do you think that's an accident, that it's in that sequence? And so kind of the most powerful one, death and Hades, but we learn right in the beginning, who has the keys to death in Hades? Jesus. And so in Revelation 1.18, where Jesus says, I have the keys to death in Hades, and that's kind of the foundation of this evil empire, we already know from chapter 1 that Jesus wins. And then we get to see it play out. But it's playing out that it kind of peaks with Babylon. And then Babylon's judged, the beasts are judged, the dragon's judged, and it goes back down and deals with all that. It is the complete and utter defeat of evil. And that's, that's what it's uh, communicating to us. The complete and utter defeat of evil. And so, yeah. Yeah, for the most part, yeah. But, it's, uh, but Babylon was called the, the mother of all whores. So it's, um, it's, again, these kind of human systems that call us away from Christ to worship other things. And so, you know, there's... There's elements of fallen Babylon in our culture. Anything that calls us away from uh, worship of Christ and to value uh, different things. You remember with Babylon, the merchants saw everything as merchandise. And we live in a culture that tends to see everything as merchandise and people as merchandise. Um, So you see elements of it around us. And will throughout history. That's just the way it works. That's, we live in a fallen world. So this gives us the, uh, the victory of Christ, the defeat of evil, but also the redemption of God's people and the judgment of evil. Um, into judgment and redemption. If we look at chapter 19, the song of salvation And we find out that, oh, I want to see where this, I do want to say this first. That chapter 18, 
if you go to the end of chapter 18, I want you to tell me um, what you hear or what, what it sounds like as Babylon falls, okay? Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, threw it into the sea, saying, with such violence, Babylon the great city will be thrown down. And the sound of harpists and minstrels and flutists and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And an artisan of any trade will be found in you no more. The sound of the millstone will be heard in you no more. The light of the lamp will shine in you no more. The voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the magnates of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. In you has found the blood of the prophets and of the saints, and all who have been slaughtered on earth. So what do you hear in Babylon? Quiet, nothing, right? And remember, silence is usually a precursor to judgment, but it's also we have the silence. So chapter 18 ends with the silence of judgment. And then how does 19 start? With a roar of people saying what? Hallelujah. See, uh, throughout Revelation, one of the things is this, this constant contrast, right? You're marked by the beast or you're sealed by the lamb. All of this stuff. And so this moment of, of God's decisive action for some is judgment, for others is vindication. So when Babylon is judged, what are God's people doing? Hallelujah. Because Babylon's judgment is their salvation. Living a faithful life in Babylon costs you something. And so when God comes and sorts things out, you are relieved. But if you have put your heart into fallen Babylon and God comes and sorts things out, how do you feel? You're weeping with the merchants. Which is a challenge to us, especially with the wealth that we have in our country. Are we too tied into the wealth of our country so that if God evened out the playing field, would we be weeping with the merchants or rejoicing with the saints? And so here you have this picture in in chapter 19 of this um, rejoicing, this great multitude saying hallelujah, and they're praising God uh, for the salvation and glory and power. And then it says his judgments are true and just. And so this again goes into God's righteousness is is what is true, and and evil is is false. And uh, here's a quote from Dr. Mulholland. It's not that God acts and fallen Babylon is judged. God is, and fallen Babylon is judged. So think about that. It's not that God is, has to kind of come up with some action to do to judge. God is the truth. God is holiness. God is. And when Babylon is held up against that, the judgment comes. Because it's, it's revealed what the truth is. Again, I'm going to go back to this idea of evil being false. And so when you, when you shine a light in the darkness, what happens to the darkness? It disappears, right? And so that's, these are the images. That it's, so it's not that God acts and fallen Babylon is judged. God is and fallen Babylon is judged. In other words, the unreality of fallen Babylon's perception, value system, and lifestyle is thrown into sharp relief in the presence of the ultimate reality of God's nature as the center of true perceptions the source of true value system, the context of a true lifestyle. So if you think of what the world is telling us about perception, value system, lifestyle, what if the message we're getting from the fallen world is a lie? And we are called to orient ourselves on Christ 
for our value system, for our lifestyles, uh, for our perceptions. I, I try to think about how to, um, I try to think about how uh, judgment and that sort of thing will go, like what, as far as this false and true. Have you ever seen an optical illusion and it looks like one thing in your head and you can't get it out of your head and then at some point you see the illusion and you see what it is and then you can't unsee it. Has that happened? Now before that thing clicks and you can't unsee it you just see it like one way. But you can't yeah or once you see that it's an illusion you can maybe you can flip back and forth but but you forever know that it's an illusion. Like, that's, that's been revealed. There was one thing I saw on the Facebook where you look through this. It's some sort of art where you look through this view thing, and it looks like a picture of some dude. And then you scan around to the side, and it's like this 3D thing where all these things are set up, so front to back and spaced out, so that when I'm here and I look in it, it looks like a picture of a guy. And when I come around here, it's all of these random things stacked up on each other. And so you see it this way, and you see it, and it's, it blows your mind. What if, um, what if the way we perceive reality in this world is broken? And if that's the case, when Christ comes and judgment arrives, there are going to be aspects of the world and of our own lives where our eyes are going to be open and we're going to think, oh my gosh. Why did I ever think it was that way? And I keep going back to the cross for this sort of thing. Because um, in, in, um, in early in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, where you hear the lion of the tribe of Judah has conquered, and then what do you see? A lamb that was slain. And for us, in our reality, those two images do not match. With the cross, Christians gather within sanctuaries with the cross, and we look at that and we would say, because God is victorious and because God loves us. A Roman would think we were insane. This is what we do to rebels. We kill them and embarrass them, and then people behave. Those two images don't match up. And so that sort of thing makes me think, what if, what, if the, what if I don't understand things the same way God does? Profound, right? But we operate in the world as if we kind of perfectly perceive it. But what if our perception is broken? What if it's a, this optical illusion and there's going to come this moment of judgment where we can't unsee it anymore? We're called to live by faith. Um, with Christ as our orientation living lives that are marked and shaped by Jesus. Um, and that tells us our values. That tells us our lifestyles. That tells us our um, way of thinking, all of that stuff, our perception. There's a, um, does anybody stream Amazon videos in here? The Man in the High Castle, anybody watch that? It's this fascinating show that they've got on that's based on uh, some novels of... Uh, it was based on a novel with the premise of what if um, Germany and Japan had won World War II. And so it's set in America in the 60s if Japan and Germany had won. And it's 
America under this totalitarian government of Germany owns most of the country, or rules over most of the country, and Japan over the West Coast. And there's secret police and all of this stuff. It's a totalitarian government. Like, and it's a terrifying story um, about just about all sorts of things. But in this, um, there's an antiquities dealer, uh, an American, that is, uh, he has items of fading Americana that he sells to Japanese people. Because for them, the old American culture is a curiosity that's passing away. And he's explaining these antiquities to, to one of the characters in there, and he's got these two Zippo lighters. And he says, let me tell you how silly things are. See these two Zippo lighters? He said, yeah. He said, you know, one of them is worth a hundred times the other. And they can't tell the difference between them. He said, one of them was in the pocket of the president when he was assassinated. The other one wasn't. And so the one in the pocket of the president has historicity to it. So it's, it's worth more. He said, but it's, but it's just the value is all in here. It's a con game they're doing to themselves when they buy this stuff. And, you know, I was thinking about that, that the way we assign values, what if it's like that? What if it's based on nothing real? The way we value people, the way we value what we do as a living, or the way we value these, what if the way we value things is simply different than the way God does? And we're like the guy buying the Zippo lighter, which maybe we can get for five bucks, we're buying it for $10,000, because we're just skewed in our way of valuing things. And so this is one of the things that, that, that I want us to, to think about with this God's judgments being true and just and what that, the implications of that might be in our lives. The unreality of our fallen value system is going to be exposed. The unreality of our fallen value system will be exposed. Therefore, the people who are living following Christ... To, it's not only look different than the world, but kind of feel like from Mars. Because it's not like we're just the opposite of the world. It's like two different conversations. Um, all right. We get into this great multitude praising God. Um, and that's a theme in Revelation. I don't know if you've noticed that. So in Chapter 5, I'll go through these fairly quickly, but I just want to point out that this is a theme. Chapter 5, verse 13, you get all heaven and all creation praising the Lamb. Chapter 7, verse 11, the angels in heaven are singing God's praises. Chapter 11, verse 15, you get loud voices praising God and the Messiah for restoring the kingdom. Chapter 14, verse 2, this heavenly multitude and followers of the Lamb singing a new song. And then chapter 19, we get God being praised by heaven's multitude for the salvation that God brings. And so you get this uh, constant um, theme of, of praise and singing and celebration of God. So how do the songs that we sing shape us? I want you to think about that. Dr. Mulholland writes, the, the singing of heaven and God's faithful is the expression of being's that resonate at their depths with the love and grace of God. Um, which is kind of poetic. So it's us at our depths resonating with love of God, and it just comes out in song. And then he wrote, um, the Roman mobs could not comprehend the fact that many Christians went to their deaths singing. Well, that's fascinating, isn't it? I think that's a good example of what it means to be countercultural. 
um, it, like the behaviors of the Christian people in that setting literally didn't make sense to the people who weren't in that point of view. We understand crying, we understand fighting back, we understand all that stuff, but praising God as we're about to execute you makes no sense. It comes from a different value system, a different way of seeing everything. Which then made me think, as a fairly morbid question, but what songs would you sing on the way to your execution? Victory and that would be a great one, wouldn't it? I was thinking, yeah, songs of the resurrection. Yeah, well, that's a great funeral, yeah, yeah. You don't want to dirge, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Christian funerals are interesting in that on, on the one hand, we've got the place for mourning because we're saying goodbye. But on the other hand, there's this undertow of victory. It's a, a fascinating thing. Yeah. I was thinking, um, like, up from the grave he arose, or Christ the Lord has risen today, or something like that. I don't know. Something to think about, though, is what songs would you sing? And, and what would those songs say? Because it'd be, what are you hanging on to in that moment, wouldn't it? Um. <laughs> yeah, and I think it has to be, I, I think that's why Easter songs would be so good, is because um, in Easter we believe that death has been defeated. So anyway, there's a thought experiment for you. If you look at verse 9, said, and the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So when it says blessed are, those, that's called a beatitude. Where are the famous beatitudes, do you remember? Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit, and all that. So um, there, are, there are seven beatitudes in the book of Revelation. Do you think that is a coincidence? What does seven mean again? Fullness and completion. God uh, created in seven days, so you get the sense of the, the fullness of things. So the blessings would be this fullness of blessings. Um, and all of the Beatitudes, all of the blessings, they have something to do with the rewards of discipleship. Rewards of discipleship. Why would the people who first heard this, why would they want to hear that? This complete blessing for the rewards of discipleship. Yeah, they're persecuted or they're tempted to be uh, not faithful. Yeah. And so this is giving them a different message. To say, I know it's hard, but blessed are they who are faithful to Christ, basically. Blessed are they who's test- who, who live out the testimony of Jesus. This is an important message for them. Um, and the Beatitudes go all the way through. Um, there's one in chapter 1, one in chapter 14, in chapter 16, chapter 19, chapter 20, and then two of them in chapter 22, so they go all the way through the end. Then we get into this uh, wedding feast. And um, there's going to be two feasts here, and we're going to have a little bit of explanation between them, but there's two feasts here. Um, oops. That's the quote I read you. There's a picture of the wedding feast of the Lamb. I don't know if that's an actual Polaroid or if that was just a painting, but it's a, the wedding feast. Uh, there's, there's two feasts that are going on. 
So the, the wedding feast, uh, they, there's, there's some pretty powerful images that are being drawn together in this image of the wedding feast. The first is this. There was a Jewish, Jewish expectation for the, for the messianic banquet at the end of times. So they believed the Messiah would come, restore the kingdom, and that at this end of the age when, when the Messiah did that, that there, there's some sort of messianic banquet. Jesus plays off of this idea a couple of different spots in the Gospels. In Luke chapter 22, verse 30, he says, So that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He's talking to the disciples. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 11, he says, I tell you, many will come from the east and the west, and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And so you get the sense of this messianic banquet, this great feast at the end of all things uh, for the faithful. That's one theme. There's another theme, this Old Testament understanding of the people of God as God's bride. So in Isaiah 62, it says, uh, your land shall be married. And then it says, as a young man marries a young woman, so your builder will marry you. That's a, a word to Israel. So Israel is God's bride. Jeremiah 2, verse 2 says, I remember your devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. And then... Uh, Probably the best example is the entire book of Hosea. Does anybody remember the prophet Hosea? What did, what did God tell Hosea to do? Marry a prostitute, right? And so if, if, if that sounds strange to you, go read Hosea because it is even weirder. So he, he tells Hosea to marry a prostitute. And Hosea was doing this, and God was having Hosea do this, to show Israel what God's relationship with Israel was like. So, um, as Hosea marries his wife, is Gomer, right? Is that right? Gomer. So, it's a name that hasn't aged well. Uh, as he marries Gomer, she is unfaithful. And if you remember, we've already talked about this connection between prostitution or uh, fornication and idolatry. And so, what's the message? When, when you worship idols, you are giving of yourself on a deep level to something other than God. And so there's this connection, but God is faithful, and Hosea is faithful through this. God is faithful to his bride. So that's a really powerful image. Um, John pulls these, these two powerful images together as he shares about this vision. And so you get the feast and you get the bride. So the messianic feast and God's people are the bride. And so you get the wedding feast of the lamb. The lamb is the groom, and the church is the bride. And so it's pulling together kind of the end of, the end of days in this messianic feast, but it's also pulling together um, God's people. Also note that um, the bride is, is also contrasted with Babylon. So this is from, what, last week. Where Babylon the, is the... The whore with whom the kings of the earth fornicate and New Jerusalem is the chaste bride or the people of God are, are this bride. There's also this uh, call to discipleship here where you get the, the spirit of prophecy thing. If you look at 19 verse 10, John falls down at the angel's feet to worship him. What does the angel say? And knock it off, right? Don't. Why not? 
just a servant, so who do you need to worship? God. You need to worship God. And you worship God, and it says in the last is, uh, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. It's, um, when you, if you were to have somebody come on the TV and say, if I was like to start up a TV show and it was Pastor Andy's prophecy time, what sorts of, <laughs> I've got a couple people watching already, I can tell. <laughs> what sorts of things would you expect? Future, predicting the future, right? This, or, or God is coming here because we can tell that. And so these kind of prediction things, which is unfortunate because that's, well, that's what, not what Revelation says it is. And it's not kind of historically what prophecy has meant. When the prophets spoke, they would say something like, Lust saith the Lord. They were speaking, uh, God was speaking through them. They were speaking the word of the Lord. And there were times where they would talk about something in the future. But the future thing was always in, in response to or in relation to something going on now. Israel, you are being unfaithful. Therefore, God is going to allow these big bad guys to come and just take you over. Or Israel, um, you have served your time. Therefore, God is going to, to release the captive. I mean, it, it may be something about the future, but it's a, a word of the Lord to the people now. And so the, the prophecy is, is about the word of God. Um, Christ is the word of God. And so when one says the word of the Lord, lust saith the Lord, and one is speaking the word of the Lord, well, Jesus, we find out just in a couple of verses, is, is the word of God. Christ is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the word of God. So not only does all prophecy point to him, but Jesus is the ultimate embodiment of what it means for lust saith the Lord. If you want to know who God is and what God is doing, you look at Jesus. The prophets were just speaking lust saith the Lord as God spoke through them. Jesus was the Lord. He is the fulfillment of prophecy. And so what does the angel say here? The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That this testimony of Jesus, and I would say a testimony of Jesus is more than just telling people about Jesus, but living for Christ. The spirit of prophecy is this life that is shaped profoundly by Jesus Christ that is pointing people to the word of the Lord. I know it's not as sexy as Pastor Andy's prophecy time. In fact, it's a lot harder. Because that means, church, that as we are to live out the spirit of prophecy, we are to live lives that are profoundly shaped by our Lord Jesus Christ, who, by the way, was crucified. And Jesus didn't say, I'm going to be crucified so you guys don't have to suffer. He said, if anyone would follow me, what should they do? Pick up their cross and follow me. So he wasn't subtle, right? He wasn't soft-selling you. In fact, I think what he's getting at here is um, the way the world values things is different. And, and we're going to look at things like it might be a loss, but Jesus is saying it's really a gain. Or in other words, um, if you want to gain your life, you'll lose it, and those who lose it, from my, that whole thing, right? It's almost like God's values are very different than ours. To go back to a theme I keep hammering on, but I think it keeps coming up in Revelation. 
Or in Galatians 2.20, where Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. Like, that's not a very subtle thing either, is it? I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Now, if that's the case for us as Christians, that we are crucified with Christ, and now it's Christ who lives in us, we are living out the spirit of prophecy. I'm going to suggest to you that people don't need primarily fortune-telling in the world around us. They need Jesus. They need Jesus. And when we can live out that testimony to Christ, that is, like the prophet saying, thus saith the Lord. It is sharing the word of God with the fallen world. This is the spirit of prophecy. Anyway, uh, we get into then in chapter 19, we continue in verse 11 with the Christ the conqueror. Jesus who is faithful and true, the, the white rider. And did you notice that these descriptions of Jesus that are in here are descriptions from earlier in the book? So Jesus is called faithful and true, and if you look in chapter 1, verse 5, or chapter 3, 14, flip to chapter 3, 14 really quick. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the origin of God's creation. And so you get these, these tie-ins, just so we know for sure who the rider on the white horse is. He's the one that is faithful and true. Um, it says, in righteousness, he judges and makes war. So the judicial action of Christ is here. And Isaiah 11, this is um, sometimes read during this time of year. Let me go to Isaiah 11, if I can. Isaiah 11, and starting with the second half of verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist and faithfulness the belt around his loins. So if you are somebody who is being faithful to God in this broken world and you're beat up and on the outside looking in, and you hear that there's one who's coming with righteousness, and he shall judge the poor with righteousness, what are you thinking? All right. That's my guy. Notice the people who really tended to respond well to Jesus were the people who had nothing to lose. The sinners, the beggars, the prostitutes, the people who needed healing. With righteousness he shall judge the poor. Is it the case, has it ever happened that People with a lot of money have a different uh, judicial system than people who are poor. If you have a really, really good high-priced attorney, does that help you? <laughs> and so here you have this whole sense, which means that, <laughs> which means that just by that setup, our justice system just cannot be just, right, ultimately. There's nobody who can perfectly judge ultimately because it apparently really matters who you have representing you. Is, yeah, the money talks in a lot of places, right? And so for, uh, if you are on the outside looking in in any way, yeah, that, that uh, affects people. 
Okay, so we see that that was back in the uh, in righteousness he judges. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Um, fire are is usually a lot of times judgment or holiness, and eyes meaning that he's perceiving what's going on. He's crowned with many diadems or many crowns. The dragon and the beast have many crowns, but they are numbered. If you remember, the beast had what do you have? Seven heads and ten horns, and then a crown on each horn or something like that, right? So the crowns were numbered. Jesus' crowns were not numbered. So who's better? Right? You get this image, right? But here's another thing that was common. It was common for if a king went out and conquered another ruler, he'd take his crown and bring it back on him or on the horse. So he'd carry and display it, right? So what's the saying? If they're both, well, it's like he's defeated the dragon and the beast. He has a name inscribed on him that no one knows but himself. So here we go to the secret name. Um, there was things with uh, knowing somebody's name. Um, it it had gave you some sort of control over them. And in part it gave you control because people's names um, were connected to something about the nature of that person. And so um, if you remember Jacob, Esau and Jacob, uh, what, what did Jacob's name mean? Do you remember? He's the, the heel grabber, which was kind of like deceiving. Yeah, so it was kind of this uh, trickster guy who would come up and, and grab, grab your heel. And uh, what did Jacob do for a lot of his early part of his life? Tricked people out of stuff. That's kind of what he did. His name revealed something about his nature. When... Jacob had this um, epiphany, kind of, or this, this revelation of God given to him, and literally wrestled with God. What was his name? What happened to his name? It was changed, Israel, the one who wrestles with God. And so you get, again, that the name is connected to the nature of the person. So if that's the case, and the Messiah has a name that nobody knows or can comprehend then the nature of the Messiah transcends our understanding or comprehension. There's nobody that can kind of fully grasp what it means for him to, what it means for who he is. God is bigger than we can hold on to. The robe dipped in blood. The question is, whose blood? Has the battle happened yet? We're just hearing him described. Has he gone off and kicked butt yet? He just showed up. Yeah, he hasn't done it. So if he hasn't gone into battle yet, whose blood is it? Maybe his own. And if it's his own blood, the first thing that would come to our mind would be is crucifixion. Now, clothes and garments tended to symbolize something in, in Revelation, right? Like, if you had white garments, what did that mean? Purity. So there's something about your character that's revealed in, in your clothes. Your clothes are telling you something about who you are, which, by the way, happened in Roman society, too, right? If you're walking around dressed in purple, then people knew something about you. You were royalty. Well, if you were in white, there's something about purity. So this is a, a pattern throughout Revelation. So if he has something on his clothes, it's telling us something about him. And if it's his blood on his clothes, then his salvation and victory has come through 
the shedding of his own blood. But also if it's telling us something about Christ, then it says, you remember back a few weeks ago, I said that, that with, with the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, that, that the cross reveals the very nature of God, that the crucifixion was not plan B. That God said, oh crap, they started sinning, we got to do something. But rather, the cross is the revelation that, that, that Jesus Christ is the self-giving, self-sacrificing love of God. Well, if clothes are revealing something about who he is, and it's the blood of Christ on him, it just shows that he, he is the self-giving, self-loving Messiah. So I, I tend to believe that the blood, is, the blood is his blood. It tells us about him, about his nature. He's called the Word of God. Um, there's the sword that comes from his mouth. And what's the sword from his mouth mean? Is he swinging a sword like, with his head? Strike, it's striking down, but what's, what's coming from his mouth then? This, his word, yeah, the word of God. Yep. Yep. The word of God cutting like a, a sword. Um, and then he rules with a rod of iron, which is in, it's a messianic psalm in Psalm 2. We also see this in, in earlier in Revelation chapter 2, verse 27. He rules with a rod of iron. And then he treads the winepress of God's wrath, which is similar to chapter 14. So he's coming as the judge, as savior and judge. And, and honestly, the blood on his clothes is going to mean one of two things for you. Either you say, I'm broken and I'm a sinner. I need help, save me. If you say that, then the blood of Christ is God's salvation. If you say, you know what, I think I'm better off being my own God, then the blood of Christ is what you do in rebellion against God. And it's the blood of your judgment. And so that, the, it's, it, the, the moment of salvation, the moment of judgment are, are the same moment, but people are on two sides of it. Then in 19, um, 17 to 21, you get this final battle. And the final battle is pictured in a couple different ways. Um, in chapter 16, it's the kings of the earth assemble for the great day of God. Chapter 19 here, we get the beasts and the kings gather to make war against the rider. Chapter 20, you get Satan deceives the nations from the four corners of the earth of Gog and Magog in order to um, gather them for the final battle. In chapter 14, you get the gathering of the grapes, like the kings are gathered for judgment. But one of the things I want you to notice about this battle, um, so have you ever watched Lord of the Rings or any of those kind of battle movies, right? Where there's this whole lead up to it and you have to get everyone together and then there's this big battle scene. And the battle scene takes some time, right? There's a lot of, a lot of work that went into it. And you imagine a lot of shots and a lot of money and really cool things and flying things that drop fireball-y things and all of this stuff, right? It's this big deal. And then you get to that moment where it looks like the good guys are going to lose and you're not sure. But then luckily, here comes the Calvary, right? It's a, and, and they come over the hill and, and then the good guys win. It's this whole drawn-out thing. It takes a lot of time, right? And so usually with, a, with some sort of a battle thing, it leads up to this big ordeal thing. Now, I want you to pay attention to how the battle thing goes in Revelation 19. So you get the, in, in verse 17, the angel calls out to all the birds, come, and you get to eat the flesh of people, which is kind of disgusting. 
And then in verse 19 it says, Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against the rider on his horse and against his army. Here it comes, right? Jesus is ready with his army, and the bad guys are ready with their army. And so it's just like the Lord of the Rings. They're going to get into this big battle, and let's see how the battle goes. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed his presence of signs. And those two were thrown alive into a lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The end. What does that communicate? It was really no battle at all, was it? You don't get a big thing where it's, where, I wonder if the good guys are really going to win. No, it's just like, and then Jesus beat them all the end. Now, why would you want to hear that if you're one of the first readers of this? Why would you want to hear that if you're a Christian in Iraq right now? I'll give you hope. Because it's, and it seems unlikely, doesn't it? It seems like the beast is going to win. And this book is saying, well, actually, when Jesus comes, it's going to be kind of a dud of an ending as far as that goes. There's not a big, awesome battle. It's just done. It's just over. And so um, that's an important thing to notice here, that um, evil is not as bad as God is good. God's goodness and holiness and power is... um, infinitely more powerful than the forces of evil, which is important for us to remember because we're surrounded in the midst of a broken world that's wrapped up in the forces of evil. Sometimes it can seem, you know, for us, like there is no, maybe no way out. All right, the the two banquets. So the first banquet we talked about was the wedding feast of the Lamb. The second banquet is what? Who's, Who's the ones that are eating? The vultures, yeah, all the birds, right? And what are they eating? Flesh. This disgusting picture of, of that. So I'm going to suggest to you that, um, so this banquet's contrasted with the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's the judgment side of the banquet. And so this is an image depicting the reality of what happens when you reject God. The reality of what happens when you reject God is, and, and I, I, don't, I don't even think it's saying that this specific thing is going to happen. I, say, I think it's saying it's like this. It's like if an angel said, okay, all you birds that eat flesh, you might as well come over here because these people are going to lose. And then they lose, and then the birds eat. Like, that's, that's what it looks like when you reject God and fight against him. And so that's the message. And so what this is, is I'm going to suggest these are two images of the same event. Or this is two images of, of this kind of final judgment. There's the messianic feast. Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And then there's the feast for the birds. But it's two sides of the same event. Christ returns in judgment. For those who are faithful in Christ, it's redemption. For those who rebel against Christ and insist on being their own God, it's judgment. Two pictures to give you kind of an understanding or a feel of the two sides of the coming of Christ. So the holiness of God produces kind of two things. For the citizens of Jerusalem, the holiness of God produces wholeness in life. For fallen Babylon, it produces disruption and it's deadly. Um, 
And so again, I want to go back to the idea of evil being false. If evil is false, and let's say that much of the history of the world has this false part to it. What happens when the truth is revealed? Well, to everyone that's bought into this false nature of things, it it burns up. You lose. But for those who hold on to the truth of Christ, and that other stuff melts away, it's, again, like with the light shining in the darkness. So then one of the things I was kind of thinking about is um, if you remember in communion, there's all sorts of stuff in our liturgy that um, has kind of hat tips to the book of Revelation. And if you look on page 14... down towards the bottom of the liturgy. I'll say something along the lines of, pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and on these gifts of bread and wine. Make them be for us the body and blood of Christ, that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. Already right there, we have this thing of um, living faithful lives in the midst of a fallen Babylon world that we may be for the world the body of Christ redeemed by his blood. That's, that's the call of the church. By your spirit make us one with Christ, one with each other, and one in ministry to all the world until Christ comes in final victory. So what's this signifying? The return of Christ, the coming at the end. And then what happens? We feast at his heavenly banquet. Why would that be in a communion liturgy? So it's it's so yeah the commun it's yeah it's part the communion is is pointing to the big feet. One of the ways I've heard this described that's really kind of awesome. You remember when uh, the Israelites were wandering in the desert and they sent out spies into the Promised Land, and they saw giants and they were terrified, but they came back with something. You remember what they came back with? Grapes that were huge grapes, and the people got to eat the grapes. Did they go right into the Promised Land? No, but they got to eat something from the promised land that pointed ahead towards a greater reality that God had for them. They ate something there that pointed ahead to this greater reality that God had for them. What if communion's like that? What if we're actually... I'm a high sacramentalist because I believe that something actually happens in communion. What if when we break the bread and, and, and share in the juice the body and blood of Christ, what if it's like like those grapes were for the people of Israel? What if it's somehow like appetizers for the Messianic feast? What if it's that first bit that we get here that shows us something greater that God has for us? If that's the case, then every time we share in communion together, um, these chapters at the end of Revelation should come to mind. And then I started to wonder, what would that mean for us as a church to do communion? And I think one of the things it would mean is, on the one hand, you'd get this vindication of the faithful. 
so that if you are going through your week and it's been very hard, you've had sacrifices whoever to follow Jesus, or it's just it's a broken world and the world beats up on you, then you get this foretaste of this time where God is going to deal with all that junk. You get this hope. But then I wondered, what if on a spiritual level somehow us taking communion was very disruptive to the broken forces of the world around us? Because the meal that's shown here, for the people who are faithful, it's the wedding feast of the Lamb. But for those who are rebelling against God, what is it? It's the Feast of the Vultures. And so, um, what if when we're doing that, like, (laughs) what if the demons really don't like it? What if it, it has some sort of impact on our community that we would be a faithful people sharing communion? Not only for the hope that comes, but for the judgment of the very forces that are just kicking people down every week. Um, what if our worship means something? Which I think is the very sort of question that the people were wrestling with um, that first read the book of Revelation. Because if you believe worship didn't really mean anything, then you could go worship Caesar all you wanted because it really didn't matter. But when you worship, if you join in with those heavenly choruses that we just went through, that whole list of things, and ask the question of what will you be singing if they lead you to the execution, like if that, what if it matters on that level? Then maybe when we take communion, it matters on that level. So just, I guess, food for thought or something to think about um, with this. All right, now on to a, a simpler subject, the millennium. So in chapter 20... Um, oh, you get this angel coming down, and the angel has uh, the key to the bottomless pit in a great chain. Who do you suppose would have something like the keys to the bottomless pit? Maybe Jesus, right? So it's almost like it's Jesus, and then he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent. You, know, you kind of picture him grabbing him around the neck, like jerking him out. Like, who has the power to do that? It really kind of seems like Jesus is this angel as described here. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who was the devil and Satan, and he bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the pit, locked and sealed it over him so that he would deceive the nations no more until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be let out for a little while, for a holiday or something. Um, so now we get into what did the thousand mean? Well, there are uh, a couple different stances it'll probably shock you to find out about the millennium. As people interpret Revelation, there are, and these, and these uh, beliefs are actually, these are, are um, pretty old beliefs, all of them. Um, so the millennium, so pre-millennial is the belief that Christ returns before the thousand-year reign starts. That's why it's pre, pre means before, so Christ returns before, and then the thousand-year starts. People who believe uh, in the, the pre-millennial understanding... Um, believe that Revelation 20 describes that return of Jesus at the end of a tribulation period and then there's a literal 1,000 years and that the righteous are resurrected to reign with Christ and then judgment follows. So pre-millennial, Christ returns, then the reign. Post-millennial is 
believing that, that Revelation 20 describes Christ's return at the close of a millennium or a, peace, uh, a, a millennial peace or a Christian dominance. So that there's a special millennium in history and then Christ returns at the end of it. Some folks that are post-millennial believe that it's a literal 1,000 years. Some folks believe that it's a, a period of time. Um, most post-millennials believe that the millennium has already begun. Most, but not all. millennial is the belief that there's no thousand-year historical period, but instead that Revelation 20 is giving an image of the church age. So it means that the, the millennium is, is simply, dis- millennium, or the thousand years is describing some length of time where Christ is reigning. And then at the end of the church age, that Christ will return in final judgment and establish the new creation. The amillennial belief was dominant until the Protestant Reformation. And Protestant Reformation happened when, by the way? 1517. So the way to remember that is, Lutherans are very excited because the, the 500th anniversary of the Lutheran Reformation is coming up. And uh, so it's just in a couple of years, in 2017. So there you go, the more you know. Um, so Satan deceiving the nations in 23, I, I want to kind of get into what this millennialism means, what the thousand year means. So the, the Satan deceiving the nations, uh, let's kind of start there. He's thrown into a pit, locked and sealed it over him so that he, he would deceive the nations no more. If you look at the Greek, the Greek for the deceiving thing, is in a subjunctive mood. How many of you have learned a foreign language? Anybody? So those of you who have kind of, yeah, two years of French in high school. Um, you know when you learn another language that sometimes other languages function very differently than ours. So you'll have like masculine and feminine senses or you'll get um, not only maybe past, prince, past, present, and future tense, but it may be something totally different where um, a different tense or a different mood or a different whatever will ha- put a totally different spin on a verb or whatever it is, which um, part of the reason to learn a different language is to just see how language functions and to see how <laughs> like it just messes up your logic. The way that you would think through English doesn't translate in the way you would think through another language, which is why when people try to speak English from another culture, sometimes they sound so funny because it's like, well, you mix your word order up. Well, that's because in other languages, their word order may be completely different. You may always have the verb before the subject or something like that. And so anyway, um, with, with this particular uh, situation, the, the Greek here has a subjunctive mood, it's called. And what that means is that a, a better translation, instead of Satan like, couldn't deceive, would be that Satan, that Satan might not deceive the nation. It's showing something that um, there's this uh, in, intent to it that's, that, he might, that he might not. In other words, the followers of the Lamb are not deceived because the reality of their life in Christ shows the falseness of Satan's realm. It's not that he couldn't, but that there's, chan- there's times where he wouldn't. And so then that goes back to the question of who the angel is and what's going on in chapter 20, verse 1 that there's something that happened with this angel, and if it is Christ that comes and has power over Satan, then we have to ask ourselves, what event might that be where Satan was bound? The resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection. Did something significant happen to the powers of the devil 
in the crucifixion and resurrection. If you have faith in Christ, do you have to fear death the same way? No. Something happened to the powers of evil. Well, so then, what does it mean about this whole deceiving the nation? Was there a point in time then in the New Testament where um, the purposes of God spread to all peoples? What might come to mind? Well, if we go to the book of Acts, what happens in Acts? missionary journeys. What happens even with the first part of Acts? Like the first part of Acts, Jesus appears. He says, you'll be my witnesses from uh, Jerusalem to Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? And then Jesus does what? Ascends into heaven where he's at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, to, to reign, to rule. And then what are the disciples supposed to do after he floats up into heaven? Wait. And then what happens? Holy Spirit comes. And the Holy Spirit comes and people from all over the world are journeying into Jerusalem. And what do they hear the disciples doing? speaking in their own language. And what happens, what's birthed out of this? Well, Paul's missionary journeys. Paul's missionary journeys to just the Jews? No. What happens to the Christian movement? All the nations. Can, can the devil deceive all the nations anymore? No. Something happened. Something happened. Um, so that's, uh, I, I think, biblically how you would look over that story. So that's one aspect of it. The thousand years in Scripture. How is the thousand years used in Scripture? Well, in Psalm 90, verse 4, it says, For you, a thousand years are as a passing day. Now, and that is, is a thousand years. Does it mean that for God, literally a day is a thousand years for God? Is that what it's saying? Is that what poetry does? Poetry, what's it doing? It's comparing a big to a little, Right? And so the thousand years is, is representing some big era of time. Second Peter plays on this. Second Peter 3.8 says, A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, a thousand years like a day. Again, Peter's not saying, so if you've lived three days, it's, like, it's not like dog years for God, right? Instead, it's talking about a thousand years as this era. This era. So a thousand years better understood as an era. And so... Um, Another clue is to think, well, what starts and what ends the millennium? Well, the millennium starts with the angel that I'm suggesting is Jesus binding Satan. How does the millennium end? He's unbound and judged, right? So you have the beginning, and and we say, well, what, what was the binding of Satan like? Well, if it is the cross and the resurrection, and then ends with the judgment of Satan, which would be what event? the return of Christ and the final judgment, then what period is in between that time? Hello, you are here. It's us, right? This is the church age. And so if a thousand years, which is used in the Psalms as, as an era, if it, if it is this era of time, this indeterminate period of time, then the thousand years, the thousand year reign of Christ is now. So then you might say, well, is Jesus reigning now? Is Jesus reigning now? He ascended into heaven to do what? Hang out until he got bored and came back? To reign. Now, here's the thing. Here's where we get into the falseness of evil and the truth in God. 
Because for us, there are days. And again, if you're like an Iraqi Christian, you're not feeling the reign of Christ right then, are you? But what if there's something deeper and more true? What if Jesus really is reigning and we just don't see it yet? Um, Because we believe that he ascended into heaven to sit and to reign and to rule. And that the fullness of that rule has not maybe come yet. But that doesn't mean that Jesus isn't reigning. It doesn't mean that he's not currently the Lord of lords and king of kings. He is now that. And so if you are in persecution or if you are tempted by idolatry to follow some other thing, this is an important message. To say, you know what, this is the reign of Christ. This is the time. And, and, and we are called to reign with him. What does it mean by reigning? Um, Dr. Mulholland wrote this kind of beautiful piece on this. I want you to kind of consider what it means for us to reign with Christ. Because as you see, make sure to give you the scriptural reference here. Um, I saw the thrones and those seated on them were given authority to judge. And I saw also the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They did not worship the beast or its image and had not received its mark on its foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. So the question is, who is currently reigning with Christ? Well, if, if it's those who haven't taken the mark and if it's those who have given their life for Christ, if it's, you know, if we are following Christ instead of the idols of this world, that would mean that the church is currently reigning with Christ. Which again, you would think, I don't know about that, Pastor. What does reigning mean? But it's a reigning that's far different from the world's concept. It's this kind of reigning that enables faithful martyrs to go to death singing and forgiving their killers. It's this kind of reigning that enables God's faithful to love their enemies and to pray for those who persecute them. It's this kind of reigning that enables the citizens of New Jerusalem to offer the other cheek to go the second mile. It's this kind of reigning that enables Mother Teresa to become a saint, losing herself among the lowest and the least of the dregs of Calcutta. It's a reigning in which one gains oneself by losing oneself, lives by dying, wins by losing. It's strong through weakness. It's exalted through lowliness. It's a reigning that comes only by a radical abandonment to the one who reigns forever and ever. What if God's truth is simply different than ours? The reason that this resonates with me, and the reason that I think that the millennial is now, and that we are currently reigning with Christ, and in reigning with Christ we are called to live self-giving, sacrificial lives for others, is that sort of reigning is exactly the sort of reigning I see Jesus doing in the Gospels. This sounds like Jesus. Do you believe Jesus reigned on the cross? Do you believe Jesus was still the Lord of Lords on that cross? Do you believe maybe he was especially Lord of Lords? That Christ on the cross 
is somehow more true than anything we will ever know. But there's something more real about that than a lot of the stuff we're tempted to buy into. And then for us then to reign with Christ is going to look like we're losing. It's not going to make sense. But if this world is really broken and false, we should be more concerned if it did make sense. Like, I don't know about you, but the brokenness and hurt and the lies and the, the destruction, and I, I, I don't hope this lasts forever. I hope that a lot of the brokenness I see around me is false. I hope that there is something more real. And I think that hope and that faith can drive us to be disciples of Christ in a fallen world. So the people of God are in the midst of the world right up until the end. And I think the, the, again, I think the rapture teaching misses that. It's about us reigning through the end. Dr. Mulholland writes, Christians exist not as some special group who will be spared the cataclysmic end of the world, but as those in whom God is present for the redemption of the world. What if the world is falling apart and God has his church right in the midst of it to embody the teachings of Christ to share Jesus because the people need to hear the truth and know the self-sacrificial love of God? We are a kingdom of priests. Remember, priests representing the holy to the unholy, this intermediary. We are to be a kingdom of priests in this world. We are the army of the great rider. But how does the army of Jesus fight? I think if you ask how the army of Jesus fight, I think this is why the image of Mother Teresa impacts so many people because that's how the army, like the one who washed the feet of his disciples, you picture someone in his army holding kids in Calcutta while they die. Right? That, that makes sense. Like that follows. And so, um, church, if we are the army of Christ then how are we to fight in the midst of a fallen world around us? How are we to go out and, and, and to live our lives by a logic that doesn't make sense to a fallen world? You hear about this, uh, and it says about the first resurrection. Um, this is the first resurrection. Blessed are those who share in the first resurrection. And there's a debate on if this means that people are bodily raised or, or what it means, or if it means the first resurrection is about people being saved. And I would suggest that the first resurrection is the new life that you have today in Christ. Why would I say that? Well, if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 5 to 6, Paul writes, Even when we were dead through our trespasses, so what were we? Dead. He made us alive together with Christ. So if you are in Christ, you were what? And now you are alive, which would be a resurrection. By grace, you've been saved. You were dead people made alive. God did this for you. And then it says, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus which kind of sounds like us reigning with Christ, doesn't it? I had a professor, I was talking to one of my favorite professors from Asbury. I was telling him, this was years ago when I was in the Revelation study the first time, he said, Revelation has some real Pauline themes to it, which I 
been chewing on for a while, and it just makes a lot of sense with this sort of thing. I mean, that's Paul writing in Ephesians, which really sounds like what Revelation is talking about here at the end. Then we get into the white throne judgment. But if you remember the throne, where did we see the throne of God before? Right in the beginning, right? And you remember in chapter 4, one of the things we said, and uh, uh, Dr. Colster writes that he thinks chapters 4 and 5 are centered to the book. Because here you have the throne room of Rome that's supposed to be ruling over all these people. And this vision is saying it's not Caesar that's ruling over all these people. If you want to see the real throne room, you need to see the throne room. And there's going to be times where it feels like maybe God's throne room isn't really winning. Like it's this, this whole disconnect where we're in the midst of it. And you need this encouragement that, oh, no, God really is in charge. God really is over all of this stuff. And, and so that's going on. Well, that throne comes back to say, hey, at the end of time, guess what? Everybody's before the throne. Because that is the throne that ultimately matters. Now, if you're tempted to go bow before the throne of Caesar just to make life easier here, but you know that at the end of the day, You've got the throne of the Lord God Almighty. It helps you maybe set some priorities in line. Which is, um, I think, the question for us to, to kind of wrestle with is, what does that mean for our lives? Because it's not, like, it's not like you have to go burn incense to the president or you're going to get beheaded. But we are, um, we are, this is my phone, we are tempted to, um, we are tempted to give ourselves away to idols and to worship before other little thrones and to neglect God who is reigning now. But anyway, this white throne judgment, this is a way, um, this is a way to symbolize to us this, this final judgment again. Um, and then the lake of fire. Fire is a picture not only of judgment, but also of holiness. And let me turn my ringer down here. Um... And so, you get the unholy are thrown into the lake of fire. Well, if the fire is, if it's not only judgment, but God's holiness, then the destination for those who are unholy is to spend eternity in the holiness of God. Which, by the way, the destination for those who are holy in Christ is to spend an eternity in the holiness of God. And so, again, I think this is just a a way to say, a way to think about if if you um, accept God as your creator, Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ as your Lord, as your Savior, if you find your meaning in Christ, the, 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 if you orient your lives, your values, if, if the way you understand things is through Christ and how you understand yourself is through God's work through Christ, if that's the case for you, then an eternity spent in the presence of God and of Christ just is, is hitting on all cylinders. It's, it's, this is, it's heaven. If you believe that you need to be in charge of your own life, that you ought to be your own God, that you or something else is, is savior for yourself, and you spend an eternity in the presence of God, who in reality is God, then what's that experience going to be like? You say, hell, fire, like a fire. So it's an interesting idea to... to um, to think about that we were made for a relationship with God um, and God invites us into that um, but the holiness of God and the judgment of God is experienced in, in two ways um, experienced as a, a wedding feast or as a feast for the vultures it's experienced as um, the wholeness 
and love of God or the burning fire of holiness against an unholy self. Any questions? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yep, yeah. Yeah, thank you. I'll try and remember to do that. Anything else? Let's go ahead and uh, we'll close in prayer, and then if you have any questions, you can come on up here. I'll make notes for myself. Don't let me forget it, Sue. That wasn't the prayer. That was just me talking to Sue. Just so you know. <laughs> Heavenly Father, um, I thank you for, for your grace and for your love, and I, I thank you for reigning. And I pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see that reality, even in the midst of a broken world. Um, that you would help us to orient our lives around Christ so that we would be shaped um, by him and by, by your word in him. Um, instead of, that we'd be conformed to the image of Christ, uh, not conformed to the world. I pray, God, that in doing so, we, your church, would be a kingdom of priests that we would live lives that um, shared the light of Christ with, with a broken and hurting world, to not only offer your forgiveness, but your wholeness and restoration. Pray now that you would um, just bless us and keep us and watch over us as we go our separate ways. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all very much.